everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Jessica Pishko, a writer, lawyer, and consultant who focuses on sheriff accountability and jail decarceration. Uh, she's currently advising nonprofit organizations on the issue of sheriff accountability. Um, and she has a JD from Harvard Law and an MFA from Columbia University. So welcome to our show. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, so, um, you know, one of the observations that I've kind of learned over the years, I had Washtenaw uh, County Sheriff from Michigan, uh, Sheriff Jerry Clayton on here. Um, and he made the point that, you know, we have this big movement of progressive prosecutors. And yet when it comes to progressive sheriffs, he's kind of the only one in town. What kind of accounts for that? Um, I think that there are a handful of reasons. And I will sort of, I mean, I'll, I'll first sort of caveat it by saying that I think we saw both um, in 2018 and this year, um, some sheriffs who got elected who did run on what I might call I, progressive sheriff, I feel like might be a little confusing, but I might say they're reform-minded. Um, so the new sheriff, for example, in Charleston, South Carolina, who just took office, Kristen Gaziano, you know, came in with like a reform-minded uh, agenda. I mean, I think there's a handful, there's a few reasons why. The first one, to be honest, at their core is just that sheriffs are law enforcement. I mean, I've, and law enforcement as a group are, tend to be more conservative. I mean, they just, they are less, they are often less interested in progressive ideas. They're often less interested in reform. You know, they come from a very hierarchical tradition where you obey orders and enforce the law. And, you know, I think it's very masculine driven. Sheriffs are also among the whitest um, and most male elected offices. So I think they are something like 95% white men. So, it, you know, it's just not an office that has been like at the vanguard of change. And then I think the second reason why it, it's been a tougher move is that you know, sheriffs have to live in the county in which they're elected. And so there's about 
3,081, I think, counties in the US, right? So that's 3,080 sheriffs to potentially elect. And many counties are quite small. So you might have some counties like Cook County, which includes Chicago, um, or, you know, San Francisco, which is a county and city, which are larger, more urban, you know, going to have like a, a different kind of agenda, like a different, more progressive reform-minded agenda. And then you might have counties that are, you know, 5,000 people, 10,000 people, you know, less than the number of students at like a state school. And so, you know, among those people, you might have a harder time finding folks who are, I think, reform-minded or progressive-minded. Um, and as a whole, sheriffs, you know, as a group don't tend to talk to each other very much. So because they tend to be so siloed in their county job and, and running on their platforms within their county, and they don't often spend a lot of time, I think, looking around to see what other people are doing, um, what other sheriffs are doing that may or may not be working. Whereas I do think, uh, very urban police chiefs for, to kind of take the closest analog. I think a lot of police chiefs, you know, they move around a lot. They'll move from city to city. They tend to share ideas. They'll bring ideas with them. So if they shift from uh, Dallas, just hired a police chief from Santa Clara. So you'll, right, you'll bring Santa Clara, California ideas to Dallas, right? So, so there's kind of this movement of ideas, whereas sheriffs, I think, have less of that going on. So how did you get into looking at sheriffs? So that's a good question. Um, I think there are two main things. Um, I had initially, when I was doing, um, started kind of doing criminal justice reform, I started uh, looking at elected prosecutors. So I had been looking at elected prosecutors, studying elected prosecutors, working with the movement to elect progressive prosecutors. And, you know, after the election of Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, um, with, you know, and then Trump was elected, I was sort of at a point where I think my own just development wanted to turn and look at something else. And so I was interested in politics and law enforcement. And then I, at the same time, was interested in the idea or the question of why some law enforcement agencies seem to do a very uh, poor job solving crimes. It's sort of a, I had this, I was sort of thinking like, well, why, why are crimes not being solved? What's going on? And so that kind of brought me to elected sheriffs because I um, had read about, you know, sort of famous cases that had gone unsolved and realized that, um, many of them were investigations being run by sheriff's departments that seemed sort of uniquely positioned. Um, well, I was gonna say, in a unique position where they did not seem capable of solving the crimes that they were supposed to be solving. And so I was, became very curious about why that was. And um, what did you do before? Before, before what? <laughs> Before you, before you got into this. Um, <laughs> I have a very long, uh, uh, I have a, an overly long background. So <laughs> after I graduated from law school, I actually uh, worked at a, a law firm in New York City. I did uh, white collar defense. So I, a lot of securities fraud. 
So I was doing a lot of like asset backed um, securities, fraud, a lot of SEC investigations. So I, I spent about, gosh, I guess about five years doing that. And um, I left around, so I left law then around 2008, which many things happened in 2008. So <laughs> it's like a confluence of factors. I left, um, many people are getting laid off. And I actually then just left law entirely. I was like, I was a yoga teacher for two years. Um, I decided to go get a writing degree at Columbia um, and sort of in the midst of all that. So I had not been doing law and then I was getting, you know, getting a degree in fiction. Um, and around that time I was working on a book that wasn't going particularly well. And uh, I was pregnant with my daughter and I was looking for something to do. And some editors were very kindly letting me write about criminal justice, which had been something I was always interested in, but hadn't, hadn't written about before. Um, so I, I sort of started doing it because, well, as, as many people are writing a book that's not working out, <laughs> writing a book that wasn't working out was kind of like looking for something else to, you know, test my mind at, something to think about, and that was how I got into it. Um, so in the New York Times uh, a year or so ago, uh, you'd uh, written that uh, sheriffs have little accountability and a lot of power. And can you kind of explain how that dynamic works? So, I mean, I think that if you ask sheriffs or sheriff associations, they will say that their power comes from, or their, their oversight comes from being elected, right? And their power too. So the sheriff is an elected position by everyone within the whole county. But once they are elected, they have, are really under no obligation to listen to anyone else in county government. So they kind of operate in their own, I would say probably in their own silo, right? So they operate in their own silo. They are not, they don't have oversight from say a board of supervisors or a city mayor. Um, they don't have oversight from the state. So states have also largely left county sheriffs to do as they will. Um, there's not a lot of, they, there tends not to be a lot of state law or legislation around what they can and can't do. And that comes from various traditions in America where we sort of overall let police and prosecutors kind of do what they will, right? We sort of have this tradition that's like, we let policing agencies do policing the way we think, let them do it the way they think they ought to do it, right? It's like a expertise and they're gonna do it their way. Um, and because of that, um, and, and often I think because county government is not something that a, a lot of national outlets focus on and certainly state governments often just don't have the resources or time to worry about every county, they have become an office that is, you know, just totally unaccountable. They don't have the kinds of oversight that I think we would expect from law enforcement. I think, um, you know, as police, you know, as policing became more urbanized and we, America sort of developed the idea of like a city police chief, the idea then became that policing was a professional 
sort of a professionalization, but also that police chiefs are hired by cities. So a city would hire a police chief to sort of do a job, right? Like you might hire, um, you know, someone to fix your roof and you say, well, I don't, you know, I don't necessarily care how you fix my roof, but I have these like certain parameters. And so police chiefs kind of operate in, in that way, right? They're sort of hired to do that. But because the sheriff was elected, they don't operate that way. Um, and so they've just kind of become a category of elected officials that are allowed pretty much to do what they want. Um, and I think the reason why that that's of concern is because they are law enforcement. And law enforcement, as we know, has a special kind of power. Um, we might have unaccountable officials in other areas, but they're not necessarily ones with the power to use deadly force or the power to put people in jail, right? So I think that's why the sheriff's lack of accountability is of particular concern. Yeah, it just seems like, you know, if you have a police chief, at least they're hired and fired by either city council, a mayor, or a city manager, whereas the uh, sheriff is really a weird uh, scenario. So you have these kind of parallel power structures. You have a board of supervisors, presumably in most places, which are elected, but then sheriffs are independently elected. And so the board of supervisors doesn't hire and fire the sheriff. They may control the purse strings. They may create oversight structures occasionally. Uh, but for the most part, uh, they don't have any power. No, I mean, the, the general rule, I mean, it, it also then varies from state to state. So there are different kind of variations. So for example, in California, boards of supervisors can create oversight. They can create oversight commissions now. Um, and the state legislature has said that that is allowed to happen and courts have agreed. In most places, boards of supervisors do also control the budget. Um, but in many states, they're not allowed to do any oversight whatsoever, um, including things like asking um, what they spent money on, how many people are housed in the jail, you know, what patrol officers are doing. So there, there often is such a like sort of lack of such a lack of even communication that boards of supervisors are often not even aware of what sheriffs are doing. And, you know, in some places, because county government, because sometimes county government operates a little differently from state government, there, there are often even infights between, so you might have an, in a budgetary fight between, you know, the sheriff and other county commissioners who want to build a stadium or something. So like you, you often have then these competing interests surrounding money, but there's really no one there to kind of referee the whole thing. And in theory, the voters are the ones who referee, right? But they often don't get all that information at the time they're voting. Well, and then you had mentioned California. So a couple of my examples actually come from California. Um, I'm about 15 minutes away from uh, Sacramento County. And there was an interesting uh, situation that happened there with Sheriff Jones. Um, he basically fired uh, the inspector general that was supposed to oversee his department. So he, uh, what he did was he ended up blocking the guy out of the building and uh, uh, keeping him out of the jail. Uh, so basically he ended the guy's role uh, even though he didn't have the ability to actually fire the guy. 
Um, and all of this was done because he didn't want uh, this guy looking into um, officer-involved shootings and deaths in custody and all this other stuff. And the Board of Supervisors, of course, is not happy with this occurring, but basically they, they get into a hot air blowing contest because they couldn't do anything about it. Right. I mean, I think in, in some ways, right, sheriffs are sort of the original Donald Trump. I mean, like there are, I mean, we also see this kind of playing out now in Los Angeles County where there are, I mean, there are structures, there are rules, there are, as you point out, an inspector who's supposed to look at officer-involved shootings or jail deaths, like there, you set up an accountability structure, but I think then you're faced with the question of, well, who's gonna make them do it? If, if the sheriff doesn't agree to oversight, right? If Scott Jones did not agree to this oversight, it's, it becomes then a question of, well, who's gonna be the person to make him do it? And I think in some ways what we're finding, I think both, both on a county scale and then sort of on a macro scale is like, we're not quite sure. If, if people don't just agree to abide by the rules, we're not quite sure who's going to make people do it. And I think because sheriffs are, I mean, look, they have a, they have a lot of weapons that boards of supervisors don't have, members of the board of supervisors don't have, you know, armed troops at their disposal. Um, and so it sort of is like an inherently unequal position, right? Like they can't, they can't have like the two, two sort of armed militias fight about who's going to win. The sheriff has his armed militia and the board of supervisors could sort of be very upset and have meetings. And, you know, in Los Angeles, they had to, you know, sheriff had to go before a judge. He was like, yes, you have to do it. I think in Scott Jones's case, there also was a hearing. I think he said, I don't want this inspector to come in. And the judge said, yes, inspector must come in. You must do it. But, you know, who's going to make him do it? It's sort of a, you know, <laughs> it's, I guess it's like that sort of who will, who will be the police for the police. Well, or it, it's almost like the Andrew Jackson scenario, right? You know, well, they've made their decision. Let's see if they enforce it. Right. <laughs> it's, certainly, um, it's certainly strange. And that's where these sort of, I mean, that's where the kind of weird county, the weird structure of policing we have in America is strange because we don't have a like national leader of police. Like there's sort of no national oversight of law enforcement who would come in and say law enforcement must do you know some like you would like sort of like you would send in national guard you can't sort of send in a federal enforcer and say now scott jones you must do x there's sort of no one to do that because of, of states states rights and <laughs> the states rights and sort of this lack of county policing oversight yeah. Now, could they do what they do in some cities and have the federal uh, DOJ come in and put them into like a receivership type scenario? They could, and I and my understanding is that they have done it before, but pretty limited. Um, interestingly, in California, the California Attorney General has uh, power, constitutional power over all law enforcement in the state. So technically, the California Attorney General could uh, tell 
Scott Dillinger, Alex Villanueva in Los Angeles County, you must do X and could enforce that. Um, although granted the attorney general's office does not have like a standing army on standby, but they could say, well, you know, I'm stepping in and saying you must do that. They have not done it. Historically, they have not done so. Um, and I do think this comes from this sort of strange, well, I think there's two things. One is that the culture of policing in America is very much that civilians don't understand what police do, right? I think if you talk to law enforcement, either sheriffs, sheriffs and their deputies or police, the, the comment you will get is that like civilians don't understand how police operate because then, and then the idea is that law enforcement and sh sheriff's offices are like a paramilitary organization that you know, non-members couldn't possibly understand. Um, so I think there's sort of that cultural feeling that resides. And then I think the other issue is that it becomes a political problem that, you know, even if the DOJ or even the state attorney general could intervene, it would sort of be picking, it would be seen as like picking sides. You would be picking the board of supervisors over the sheriff, even if the sheriff is clearly in the wrong. And I think, like I said, we've kind of seen it replayed on the federal level that people don't like to be seen as picking sides. <laughs> sort of, when you're faced with, a, with an instance of, you know, someone in power not following the rules, there seems to be like a, a lot of confusion about, well, if we don't all agree to follow the rules, then I have to decide who is right and who is wrong. And this sort of is, has historically been a thing that, um, interestingly, political leaders don't want to do. Yeah, and, you know, we've had a lot of problems with the attorney general in this state, um, you know, whether it's... Uh, police oversight or cracking down on prosecutorial misconduct. We just can't get the attorney general uh, to uh, do anything. Um, we're kind of looking forward to the fact that the AG is probably moving on now to Secretary of Health and Human Services. And so there will be a new AG probably in a few weeks. Um, and, and we'll see what they do. But, you know, getting the AG to do anything, um, and, and not just this one, but Kamala before, um, neither one were, were very good on police or prosecutorial oversight. No, I mean, that is, it is true. I mean, I was just thinking of the whole Orange County snip mm -hmm. scandal. I mean, we, you know, now we have multiple Southern California sheriffs who don't want to enforce state rules um you know related to like health health issues over coronavirus and it, it strikes me as odd that the attorney general's office has been totally silent on this um i thought well i did not think he would at this point I'm, I'm hoping that the new attorney general you know it doesn't seem terribly out of line for the office to issue a memo that says something like all sheriffs must enforce state health laws that feels pretty normal and benign, but um, that's something I am looking to see what the new attorney general does. And I'm hoping it's someone who's a little more, you know, embraces uh, policing the police a little bit better. Well, you mentioned Orange County um, and, you know, it's really interesting. So back in 2014, we had uh, Scott Sanders, the public defender uh, 
down there uh, come and speak uh, before us uh, about uh, the informant scandal. And then of course, uh, in the last year, they've had uh, another big scandal, uh, which has involved uh, the Sheriff's Department losing evidence or mishandling evidence or uh, all sorts of other things with evidence, uh, <laughs> uh, which is just absurd, but nobody can do anything about these guys. And then, you know, you also mentioned LA's sheriff, Alex Villanueva, um, the Board of Supervisors has been trying to crack down uh, on him. Where uh, Have you been following that? Where does that uh, stand? So it's been a pretty protracted battle. Um, the last that happened was the, so they have, I mean, and interestingly, it's an interesting thing because I was talking to people about sheriff oversight and Los Angeles County actually has probably one of the, the most robust sheriff oversight commissions in the country. I can't offhand think of anyone, right? They have about as much power as an oversight committee could have. Um, so they issued a subpoena to force the sheriff to come to an oversight committee meeting. A judge said, yes, you have to. And so he did in December come to an oversight committee meeting. He answered about 20 minutes of questions. Um, and that was sort of <laughs> that was sort of the extent of it. They got to ask him some questions. They wanted to get him to agree to come back. Um, but he has also sort of not wanted to work with the inspector general. Um, then the inspector general wrote a very long memo about, and the memo is titled something like, you know, illegal happenings in the Los Angeles Sheriff Department. Sort of a no, you know, I mean, at this point it's sort of turning into a, there's not a lot of question that what Sheriff Villanueva is doing is illegal. And there are multiple illegal things. Um, but yeah, they have not been very successful at forcing him to do things. And what's sort of interesting was in the last oversight commission meeting, most of the members of the oversight committee were actually trying pretty hard to be very, very nice, like very uh, receptive. Thank you for coming, even though he was coming under the threat of, you know, uh, contempt of court. But you, <laughs> most people who are brought to court under under the threat of going to jail or not told like, thank you for coming to court today. <laughs> um, and so it wasn't everyone on the commission, but there were a few, they seemed more concerned, I felt like with smoothing things over and trying to, you know, as they say, quote unquote, work productively um, than they did enforcing rules. Um, I am very curious to see what happens. I think, you know, I mean, this now this is my, in my opinion, there is a very strong possibility he will not last his term. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going too far out on a limb to uh, say that. I think, you know, the Board of Supervisors is exploring ways to remove him from office. Which... For people that may not be that aware, uh, what is the biggest issue with what he's doing? Oh my, the biggest issue. Um, I would say the there are a handful. So one involves, some involved deputy involved shootings. So there's been deputies have shot and killed people and um, the sheriff, at least two of them have gone to what's called a coroner's inquest 
which is usually a relatively rare and serious event where a, a sort of small jury comes together to decide what happened, right? How, how did this person get shot? And the sheriff's office refused to cooperate, refused to hand over papers, refused to have officers testify. Um, some of the officers went out of state. They went to Mexico instead of, uh, like on vacation, instead of testifying, which is an incredibly odd thing. Um, there were, there are deep concerns about um, what they call uh, officer cliques or in essence, officer gangs. So that it, because Los Angeles County is quite large and it's the largest sheriff's department that there have been historical problems and still are today um, groups of sheriff's deputies who terrorize neighborhoods, arrest people, use excessive violence kind of in the name of gaining prestige within these uh, officer cliques. Um, there are, I was going to say, there's also coronavirus at the jail, which is among a problem many people are having. Um, and he is also just generally men, the inspector general has come several times. They are also have questions about deputies he has rehired. Um, so the previous sheriff had fired a, a lot of deputies for illegal acts. I mean, basically they had done illegal things. Many of them included domestic violence incidents that were pretty serious. Um, Alex Villanueva brought many of these deputies back into the force and sort of said, well, they were wrongfully um, terminated. I mean, this might seem like a thing that, you know, Alex Villanueva argues that this is sort of, this was sort of politics at work that deputies were being fired because they weren't preferred by the administration, but many of them, you know, a deeper look at many of them reveals a lot of concerning activity. Um, the sheriff changing paperwork, the sheriff asking other people to change the dates on paperwork, to remove paperwork, to, um, I mean, enough so that career, you know, people who were, I think, career employees in the sheriff's office uh, quit, which, to me, if someone is a, an, on, in charge of oversight in the sheriff's office and quits because they do not, they're being asked to do something they think is illegal, um, that's usually a pretty good sign that it probably is. <laughs> you know, 20 something veterans in a county department um, don't just up and quit unless they think something really bad is going on. So, you know, there's quite, there's, there's enough that there was a whole memo. So it's, that's sort of hitting the highlights. <laughs> Well, that's why I asked the, uh, what are the major points? Um, and then, you know, there's another interesting uh, county here in California. Uh, we were chatting about it uh, over Twitter a couple of weeks ago, uh, Kern County. Um, and it was really interesting watching the press conference uh, with the AG's office, uh, because here's a major investigation by the AG. I mean, this took place over four or five years um, Kern County, for those who don't know, uh, which is Bakersfield, basically, and a whole bunch of rural areas, um, has the highest per capita uh, officer-involved shootings in the country. And it's not just Kern County sheriffs, it's also the Bakersfield Police Department. And so there's this kind of big culture there. Um, and it you know, it's not a tiny county, but it's not LA either. So it, it's kind of interesting. And then um, the sheriff gets up there after, you know, um, 
uh, Becerra makes his statement and he says, well, you know, we really don't agree with uh, uh, the findings of the attorney general's office and we don't think we have a problem with, uh, uh, you know, use of force and things like, like that. But, you know, we're going to go along with all this stuff, but we, we just don't agree with this. And it's just like, I'm like thinking as I'm watching this, how do you solve a problem if you don't admit that you have a problem? It was a really bizarre press conference. And this was, I mean, it was a, what dozens of pages of recommendations. I mean, this mm -hmm. was not a, you know, as you point out, it's a multi-year investigation. These were very serious allegations. It alleged like years of excessive violence, of, um, of racial profiling, you know, so it was like a, a lot of, it was a lot of stuff and a very long sort of settlement agreement. And, you know, I don't know, this, you know, Becerra at that point had already sort of said he was leaving. So I didn't, to some extent that was, we were sort of joking about that. Like, I didn't know if he had sort of checked out. Um, and Becerra kind of went off camera when the sheriff started to talk because it was like a Zoom, you know, Becerra was there over Zoom. But um, yeah, the sheriff just did not, sort of agreed that, you know, well, we could always do better, as, you know, people like to say, well, we could always improve, and this is an opportunity for improvement, but really admitted no, no wrongdoing by anyone. I don't think anyone was fired. Um, my, I don't recall any deputies being fired. There was certainly no wholesale, like, investigation into why or how this was happening. And I mean, a lot of the AG's recommendations were further training, was a lot of additional training, but, and tracking of incidents, but, you know, for a pretty serious and rare investigation by this AG's office, um, it, it was very strange. And, and I couldn't, I could not tell if, you know, AG Becerra was just sort of thinking, I don't have to deal with this sheriff anymore now, or, <laughs> I was not quite sure, like, if, or if this was an investigation he resolved quickly um, before he left office. I couldn't, I couldn't quite understand why there was such a huge disconnect between what the sheriff thought was going on and what the paper said, you know, what the papers with the settlement agreement said was going on. Well, I, I mean, I guess, and, and this is obviously my bias against Becerra, but it just <laughs> seems par for the course. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, this is a guy whose office, uh, when uh, the judge issued a really, really terse and angry ruling uh, in uh, uh, one of the um, uh, the massacre that occurred at Seal Beach, uh, Scott DeCry case, uh, you know, they fought it. You know, the 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 judge threw out the death penalty and the AG's office fought that. Um, and this, this is a guy who's supposedly against the death penalty. Um, so, I mean, it, it's just par for the course, unfortunately. And, you know, unfortunately we saw the same thing from Kamala Harris, which is, you know, part of the reason, you know, I, you know, my, my, my listeners and readers know you know, I, I have a long history of criticizing Kamala Harris. Okay, she's vice president now. You know, I remember sitting with her uh, at uh, Starbucks in San Francisco when she was still DA interviewing her and she's giving one-line answers on criminal justice reform. This in 2009, right before she ran for AG. Uh, so, I, I mean, you know, 
I, I'm just skeptical about Becerra, uh, just as I'm skeptical, uh, was skeptical about uh, Kamwa. And, you know, we just see this over and over again, that for whatever reason, they cannot hold these people accountable, um, especially in law enforcement. And I, you know, I sometimes get that because, you know, the law enforcement unions are really powerful and maybe the people weren't behind it. But after the last year, really? I mean, it seems like a lot of the uh, the public is behind, you know, getting tough, especially if there's evidence of wrongdoing. I mean, you know, when, when you have the highest per capita uh, uh, officer involved shooting rate and you're Bakersfield rather than LA, I, I think you should be asking questions, right? <laughs> I, I mean, I think it's, I, I agree with you. And, and I also recall a lot of, many instances of prosecutorial misconduct where Kamala Harris did not intervene, that she also defended the death penalty. She defended also a lot of, um, what I remember being puzzling was a, a lot of people who were sentenced to life without parole, who were trying to get uh, released on new sentences. She had sort of changed the laws around the use of uh, domestic violence, sort of like, uh, you know, sort of intimate partner violence as a defense at trial. And these were women who had not been able to use it. And she fought all those cases, um, which actually Governor Newsom gave a hand, gave some of them uh, clemency. So some of them, you know, I, I think after a lot of, you know, protracted work by advocates. But I do think that, I mean, one thing I will add is that when, you know, California as a state, passed a measure that allows every single county to set up sheriff oversight. Um, it passed pretty overwhelmingly and quickly in the state legislature. The governor signed it with no fuss, um, even though all the deputy unions opposed it, all the sheriff unions opposed it, and a few of the DAs opposed it, that it went through. And in some counties, put this to a popular vote. So a handful of counties, there were, the law allows a few different ways to establish it, but one of them could be put it to a county vote. And in counties where this was put to a county vote, um, over two thirds of voters wanted sheriff oversight. Like I think Sonoma County was one of them. You know, two thirds of voters in Sonoma County wanted sheriff oversight. So this is not a, you know, unpopular idea I think among people, people want oversight. Um, and I think this makes sense. Like while many people may, you know, many community members and voters may not want to, you know, as they say, get rid of the sheriff's department. I think you're sort of getting into more stickier territory. When you're talking about oversight, overwhelmingly, there's no question that that's what people want. And so I was, I am a bit surprised too, particularly considering the attorney general position California's appointed it does not seem like there would be a huge, I do not think that no, they they're elected. Pushback. So I, I, yeah, I sort of don't see like why you wouldn't at least issue advisory opinions. Like, you know, <laughs> you must let inspector generals into your jail. Even just a sort of advisory opinion would do a lot to say, look, this is the rule and this is what you're going to do doesn't mean Scott Jones or anyone else will do it, but, it, you know, it would be, I think it would be something, you know, at this point, that would be something. Yeah, so, I mean, that's what I was actually going to ask you is, what do you see as the remedy? I mean, 
you know, one, one, one question I, I guess I have is, you know, sheriffs, if you actually read the history of sheriffs, they're, they're kind of a artifact of uh, history because, you know, those were the kind of law enforcement uh, in the wild, wild west. And, and so, you know, a lot of sheriffs, they really don't have jurisdiction over huge populations. I mean, some counties like LA, they're actually pretty large unincorporated uh, uh, populations. But, uh, you know, for the most part, they run the jail, which seems like you could hire or create a structure to run a jail. Uh, doesn't have to be a sheriff. Um, you know, they, uh, they enforce uh, laws in the rural areas. Uh, but why do you need an elected position as opposed to, uh, you know, the county appointed position for that? Uh, it seemed like, you know, if your con concern is really about accountability, uh, creating a structure where they're more accountable. Um, and, you know, you, you think, oh, well, you know, the voters are, are the ultimate arbitrators, but, you know, we saw, you know, the problems that you had in uh, places like, uh, or in areas like, you know, prosecutors, yeah, the voters, uh, you know, ha have authority there, but if nobody's opposing the uh, candidate, then, you know, they're basically getting elected and reelected without any kind of uh, uh, real oversight. I mean, you know, it used to be pretty rare for DAs to get challenged. I think when the ACLU did their study, I don't know, eight years ago now, who knows? Um, but, you know, it was like 85% uh, of, uh, of DAs uh, were unchallenged. And even when they were challenged, 85% of DAs got reelected. Now that has changed because there's become this kind of concerted effort. But, you know, it's pretty rare to have a contested sheriff's election unless it's an open seat. Yes. I mean, and actually the interesting thing about the DA information is that while we do have more contested DA elections, there's still a lot that aren't, particularly in rural counties. So, um, you know, there are a lot of, there's still a lot of counties and only sort of handfuls that have contested elections. So I think even that has quite a, quite a ways to go. I mean, I guess this is sort of where I get in, we get into some things that I think a lot about. I mean, I have, you know, and this is kind of my sort of opinions, inform, kind of opinions informed by research. I think that, I think that the election of sheriffs is, is a problem. Um, and one of the reasons why I think elections of sheriffs are, are a real problem is that the people who are electing the sheriff are not necessarily the same people who experience the impact of the sheriff. So even just taking LA County as an example, the LA County Sheriff's Department is large and they do manage unincorporated areas as well as many contract cities. I think he has about 44 cities that he, um, in essence, is a, is a business. He's sort of a rent a cop and oversees these cities. And I mean, they range from cities like Compton to, you know, um, some of the cities in the Valley to like West Hollywood. So it's a wide range of cities. Yeah, so he sort of, you know, runs this business. And, but the people who experience the sheriff, right? Who, who actually either encounter the sheriff, encounter the deputies or are in the jail, 
is a much smaller, you know, one, it's, they're not necessarily folks who either uh, can vote, like they might be excluded because of, of convictions, they might be people who, for whom voting is more difficult, right, they might, you know, live in more inaccessible areas, more rural areas, it's harder for them to get to the voting booth. And, they, you know, they are often not the majority of people in the county, right? So LA County has a lot of people, but how many of those people actually encounter their sheriff? And I think that that is where we get to the problem of, you know, should we elect law enforcement? Because we, it certainly is true that not everyone experiences the impact of law enforcement the same way. And so is it okay for, you know, a kind of, let's say it's a county that's a majority white, is it okay for that majority white county who will never see the sheriff to elect a sheriff who will uh, oppress or use excessive force against, you know, people of color who may not be the majority of voters, but are the majority of people who experience, you know, what the sheriff is actually like. So I think that this is where we sort of have a, a clash of like, what is law enforcement for? And how do we decide what is okay? You know, is it okay just to do what the majority wants? Um, and there are moments in American history in which like the Supreme Court has said, well, the majority of people want segregation, but that's not allowed anymore. So, <laughs> I mean, we, you know, we, we haven't always, we cannot always say that the majority will make a good rule. So I think that's the first thought is that it, just because the majority of people agree on a sheriff does not mean, you know, that they know necessarily what they're agreeing on, nor that they have enough information to really know. Um, or they may agree on something that is not okay right that that happens too um you know i also i i tend to think that you know one of the biggest issues i think with sheriffs and this is sort of my own issues is that they should not be both on the front end and back end of of policing so they they both arrest people as you say and, and conduct patrol and then they also run the jail and that to me is just you know jails do not need to be run by law enforcement um, you could envision a jail as more of a, uh, let's say like we would not put uh, hospitals under law enforcement. You know, if jails, many sheriffs will say, well, my jail is the largest mental health hospital in the county. I think that LA sheriff says that, has many LA sheriffs have said that all the time. But if that is true, then why is law enforcement running it? Shouldn't it be, I mean, it could be under any number of departments. It could be you could create a new department. And there are um, places that have done that. So King County, which is uh, Seattle, just took the, took the jail away from the sheriff and just has a jail commissioner appointed by the board of supervisors. That person runs the jail and then they can hire staff. I mean, the advantage to not having jails under law enforcement control is that you don't need to have sworn deputies. You can have civilian staff, um, which I think is, would be better, um, but that's my own, you know, I think that that's <laughs> getting into the realm of uh, opinion there. But I, you know, I tend to agree that I'm not sure if, you know, sheriffs care a lot that they're elected. The National Sheriff Association has an entire campaign that they run around the country talking about how good elected sheriffs are. It is, and so sheriffs are extremely committed 
personally, you know, and professionally to the fact that they are elected. This is very important to sheriffs, but the information that is based on is not necessarily true. People will say, well, it's in the state constitution. Many state constitutions were written very quickly. They were hastily written, slapped together. California's was one of them. So especially states in the West, they slapped some constitutions together, said, here we are. And among county officials that were elected was a sheriff. So some of the fact that sheriffs are elected is purely accidental, it was not a sort of concerted, uh, there was no debate about it. It was not a concerted thought process on, is this how law enforcement should be? So I, I think for, for sheriffs themselves to rely on kind of a history of being elected is, you know, it's a little misplaced. Uh, it wasn't done as a, I think, really thought out intentional measure. Um, and in, indeed, you know, there uh, was a historian, a political science um, study done out of Stanford that found that many states did not have elected sheriffs until well into the 1800s. So it certainly wasn't like the original colonies had elected sheriffs. They did not have elected sheriffs. <laughs> so we can't trace it back to some sort of like American origin story. Well, um, unfortunately uh, we're out of time um, but really enjoyed the discussion. Uh, I think this is a topic that really doesn't get enough attention because uh, everybody has a sheriff, really, um, if you think about it. Um, and so, um, but we don't seem to focus as much on sheriff's departments as we do other branches of law enforcement, at least from my experience. So uh, it seemed like a good uh, topic. Uh, wanted to thank you for uh, joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.